0: Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. This week, we turn to the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 17, as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon titled Heirs with Christ. So we'll give a little bit of time for that transition. So with that, children, you guys can go to your Bible study time. Uh, And if you're in here, you can join me in Romans chapter eight. Romans chapter eight. And then while you're turning something else, uh, want to pass along church family matter. Uh, I've been meeting with the deacons in training. uh, So the men of the church who are not yet deacons but are in that process of training, Mr. Darrell White and Mr. Brian Blair. Um, And as I've passed along uh, in the process of that, um, before we ever even gave the agreement to move forward, um, we did an interview with them um, asking some challenging tough questions about their life scripture says that not only is the, you know, church family to recognize men of character and to nominate them. And so you all did this, but also the elders then um, do a time of some testing of looking into their life. That's kind of a tough thing to evaluate someone's character and actions and lifestyle. We've done that, um, and so Pastor Ben and I feel comfortable moving forward and commending them, but this is something that we have uh, always done in the past. We believe it to be a wise practice for the protection of the church. If anyone has a biblical reason why you believe either of these men ought not serve as deacons, bring that matter uh, to Pastor Ben or I um, in order for us to be made aware of it because we are not aware of something that would prevent them from serving in this capacity. All right, let's turn our attention to the word here. We're in Romans eight and we're specifically today gonna meditate on verse 17, but to get the context here, we're gonna back up to verse 12 and then read down through verse 17. So let's begin in verse 12 there. So then brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received the Spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the Spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. if, indeed, we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we come to you and ask for your mercy to be honest as we study. You are exalted in the heavens. Those gathered around your throne, they are worshiping you. They see your worth. It's only here in this place that we struggle to comprehend your glory. And so, Lord, we ask that you will give us understanding of it. Father, we pray that you show us more of yourself. Father, we pray that you reveal your truths. Lord, you have revealed yourself in your word. That's why we are spending this time opening it up. Help us, O oh God, to see, understand, and then to come to know you. And Lord, in this passage, there are incredibly comforting, invigorating truths. I ask, oh God, that you would give us that light bulb moment where we come to understand it, that with a, a fullness of comprehension, we get it. And then that that would change us. But Father, there's also in this passage challenging things. And I pray that we would also see those as well. Father, show us the glory of the inheritance that we have coming to us in Christ so that, Lord, we're able to be strengthened, able to rejoice, able to persevere. Father, and that we will live in greater obedience to you. So, Lord, we pray, reveal your truths, reveal yourself. Give me help, God, to to preach and be faithful. Lord, to say only what's helpful and to explain this text in a way that honors you and is useful. So please bless that and bless all of our ears to hear and receive, oh God. Uh, We pray hallowed be your name, Lord. We ask this through the name of Christ. Amen. Uh, John Newton, uh, that's the guy who penned what is probably the most famous hymn uh, in the English language, Amazing Grace. He he said um, in a sermon one time that as as Christians, those who are in Christ, that we ought to think of our lives as a trip uh, that we take because some rich relative has uh, left us some massive inheritance, it's ours, but we got to show up and receive it. So he says, imagine, now he wrote in the days uh, before cars, so he says, imagine you climb into your wagon and you set off on this trip. You have an inheritance, it's legally declared as yours. You just have to make the trip show up and it's yours. So you set off on your trip, but along the way you break a wagon wheel. I guess that would be like the older version of uh, getting a flat tire on the way. You break a wagon wheel on the way, uh, on this trip. But he says, everyone would think you crazy if you had to walk the rest of the way and all the way, you just simply complained and whined about this broken wagon wheel. <laughs> you're on your way to riches. There's an inheritance that is yours. Rejoice. Forget about the wagon wheel. Forget about the annoyances, the difficulties on the way. Rejoice, for you're claiming an inheritance. What we have here in verse 17, is is really the the logical conclusion, the logical next step in everything that we have been seeing building up to this point. Remember that the first 11 chapters of Romans are laid out as a logical argument. And so consistently when we come and we look at the new truth in a new verse, we'll kind of say like, okay, well, yeah, that makes sense based on what we've seen building up to this. What we have in the first part of verse 17 is just the next logical step. Last week we saw we are children of God. Well, this also means that we are heirs of God. There's been this building argument. So I I can say one sentence and really kind of summarize seven chapters of the book of Romans. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That one sentence kind of summarizes seven chapters of what we've seen building up. For those who are in Christ, we have received the spirit of God. That's what the subject matter of chapter eight has been all about. He is working to make us ready for the kingdom of heaven. Um, In the kingdom of heaven, we will be made completely holy. He is at work right now. He's getting us ready. This work of sanctification is getting us ready for the life everlasting. It's like the prototype before the finished product is revealed. He is at work preparing us and he is testifying to us of our adoption. You are children of God if you are in Christ and if children then heirs. But there's more that's revealed in verse 17. There are some things revealed there that we wouldn't understand unless it were explained to us in this passage. And so what I want to do is just spend this time uh, meditating on what's in verse 17 and how this applies. I've got it broken into four parts, just kind of four phrases that are in verse 17 there. I want to work through the phrases, um, end with some application. Um, You'll notice that this is simply further teaching underneath this seventh work of the spirit in our lives. So we've been seeing this ministry of the Holy spirit. He is working in these various ways. We've mentioned that there are nine of them. We've been working on this seventh one. And what happens is when we come to the seventh one that he testifies of our adoption. Well, there's more that he is leading us to understand and rejoice in. So this is just further teaching underneath we're adopted as children of God there's some big things that it means. So we're, we're, we're meditating on that this morning. So I'll walk through these parts and then just some final applications. So we'll do it A, B, C, and D. So here's letter A. If you're taking notes, you see there in verse 17, we are heirs of God, heirs of God. Now, if you're just joining us, um, or if this study of the Bible and some of these truths we've been looking at are still kind of new to you, there's a major point that we need to make from the very beginning here. It's a major point that is made again and again, repeatedly in the book of Romans and and in the Bible. These promises that we're talking about, um, eternal life, you have the spirit of God, uh, adoption, these promises, these are not for every soul on the planet. These promises are for those who have come to God to receive them. There is a way that you can come to God, even where you sit right now, in the next five minutes, your eternity could be changed, but that won't happen unless you come to the understanding that apart from Christ, apart from this salvation that God explains, you are not okay And so I got to give the warning that if you're sitting there right now and and you're you're thinking to yourself that you're fine with God because you believe that you are good or you've done enough good deeds, or I'm sure in the end, it's all going to work out because everything just works out in the end. That is the opposite of the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is what God has done in history to save people who do not deserve this, all who come to Christ to seek refuge, to to, to be pardoned of our sins. And so this is the message that God calls the gospel. You are not okay on your own. You've broken the law of the holy God who is creator and your judge. You are not right with him on your own where you stand. You need to be pardoned. You need to be forgiven. You need all of these promises given to you and you can receive them when you will turn in faith, not by your works, not by your goodness, turn in faith, trust in Christ. We are forgiven of our sins, made right with God, justified, adopted, and then God begins the work of transforming your life. So yeah, he's going to work on you, but it comes after the forgiveness So when the Bible uses this language of in Christ, that's what this means. So these promises, I speak to you who are in Christ. Well, we're told is that yet another of the gifts and the graces that God has lavished on us is that there is an inheritance to come. Now, it's mentioned just briefly here in Romans, but let me take you to a passage where there's a little bit more said about it. Flip over to the book of Ephesians with me, if you want to turn there. Uh, Ephesians chapter one. Now, Pastor Ben has uh, spent some time preaching through this and explained these truths, so I'm only going to do it just in kind of a reminder sort of fashion here. Uh, Ephesians 1, if you'll find verse 3, what happens is uh, there is uh, what is often called the longest sentence of the Bible. It is a uh, time of worship of recounting, remembering the ways that God has worked, the graces that God has given. So in verse 3, I'll just kind of make a few comments as we read through it. We're celebrating the ways that God has worked to Save and give His grace. So, verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, He's going to begin to name some of them. Verse four, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. So, election, that's a gift of God, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to. Adoption. There's another gift that he's worked as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. And then here's the why. Here's how God is working all things to the praise of the glory of his grace. That we would worship him for the magnitude of his grace to us, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Verse seven, in him, we have redemption through his blood. There's another, the forgiveness of our trespasses. There's another, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. Okay, so you see the context of what's going on there. Now now jump down to verse 11, as another of these gifts and graces of God is explained. Verse 11, also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, according to his purpose, who works all things, After the counsel of his will. And now next he goes on to explain, here's another gift that he gives, the gift of the spirit. Like we've been seeing in the book of Romans in verse 13 there, uh, uh, he says that the spirit is given to us as a seal. So in other words, the Holy Spirit works to uh, uh, seal us to make sure we make it to the end. The Holy Spirit is at work in God's people to make sure that at the end, we're still following Christ and we're kept. We make it. And then verse 14, who is given, so the Spirit, He is given as a pledge of our inheritance. So not only is the Holy Spirit ministering to seal us, He's a pledge of what is to come. There is a fullness. There is a finished product. There is a glory, there is a joy that we will have in the end. But we get to taste of it, like the little little sample, we get to take a little sip now. When you experience the Holy Spirit transform your life out of the, the gutter and the sewer of sin and the devastation and misery that it brings... And God ge- brings this transformation. It's like a little bit of a taste of the glory of what will come. We get to taste of the joy, m- moments of joy that are a taste of the great glorious joy that we will have is a pledge of our inheritance. And, and then there's one more point that this text is going to make here. But let, let me say something right before we get to it. Th- there's a major point in the Bible that we need to learn how to pray. See, because when we're in places of, you know, immaturity, seasons in the flesh, we just, we want dumb stuff. And when we want dumb stuff, what do we pray for? We pray for dumb stuff. When we want dumb stuff, that's what we ask for from God. God. And when we're doing this, we're, we're just missing out. And so there's this major point in the Bible that as you read the word of God, part of how it is transforming you, transforming your thinking. It's also transforming our desires. It is transforming us in that it shows us what is actually valuable. What really matters, what, what really counts. Okay, so it's kind of like you come to a three-year-old toddler, okay? And you offer, okay, I'm going to give you whatever you want. You're going to have a sucker or a thousand dollar bill. What's, the, what's that kid going to ask for? Okay, paper don't taste good, okay? I want that sucker. That child cannot comprehend actual value that is there. There's us. There's us in our fleshly thinking. God holds forth these precious, glorious, valuable gifts And we think, I want the sucker. I want the passing pleasures of indulgences and and sinful ones, but also just good ones that are okay in this world, but they're to be kept in context and not worship. And we're constantly reaching for the sucker. What happens as we read the Bible and God is transforming us is we come to see how valueless the things of the earth are and how gloriously worthy these things that God offers us are. So over and over again in, in the Bible, Okay. One of the things that, you know, learning how to pray is more than just learning what to say. It, it, It comes out of what we desire. What are we asking for, for God? I want dumb stuff. I ask for dumb stuff. When I understand what is valuable, now I'm asking for the right kinds of things. And so there's this point in the Bible that we need to learn how to pray because we learn what is actually meaningful and valuable. What happens in these next verses, 15 to 23 there, is Paul tells these believers, I pray for you. Here's what I pray. So this is helpful to lean in and pay attention to. These are the things to write down on your list. And I want you to see verse 18. This is just one of the things that he prays there. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know. So he prays they'll come to understand Grasp, comprehend what is the hope of his calling. There's a whole sermon in itself, but notice what's next. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? He prays that believers, we should be praying that we will come to know, that that we will come to understand in the fullest measure the riches of the glory of our inheritance. So another way of saying that is to understand just how amazing the inheritance that we have coming, what what it really is. Now, why would that be such a big deal? Why would God want so badly for us to understand that? Christian, it's because comprehending the glory of what is to come comprehending what is coming in the kingdom, the inheritance that we will have will cause your heart to understand what is actually valuable. We will begin to be bored with money. We will begin to value what is actually valuable and we will yearn for it. And when we yearn for it, that will have a strengthening and energizing kind of effect. When like the light bulb comes on and we begin to desire what is actually desirable, your entire way of thinking and how you look at the world will change. And this is why the world will look so strangely at Christians who are not obsessing over the pleasures of the earth. But we have our sights set on something that is infinitely more valuable. Listen to me, Christian. Suffering in this life will become much more bearable. will begin to take on a, a much different kind of feel when we comprehend and rejoice in the inheritance that we have coming. Suffering can move from tolerable to bearable to even being able to smile and rejoice in the midst of those things. Paul could. Paul could, Paul could look at the butcher block, that place where they would lay men's heads right before they beheaded them. Paul could look at that smile and rejoice and see it as an instrument of his sanctification. Paul could say things like to live is Christ and to die is gain. I don't care what comes. I just want to magnify Christ, whether by life or by death. Paul was able to rejoice in the midst of sufferings. It helps that Paul was given a vision of heaven. He got to see those things. He says, I got to hear things that I'm not permitted to repeat on earth. Man, I want to know what that is. And we will. He was so shown glory and it was able to change his entire perspective of how he viewed suffering. God tells us about the glory of our inheritance so that we will yearn for it. So that we will understand reality as it is. You know, how many times have we said this, that one of the things the Bible is doing is just showing us reality as it is. So God tells us, to yearn for our inheritance above the pleasures of this earth. It's not just like we're just supposed to, you know, I guess, you know, I have to, but I'm I'm looking over at sin going, yeah, but that would really be more fun. No, it's the sucker and the thousand dollar bill. What we don't comprehend is the value of the inheritance. And the Bible is revealing this to us. When we count the riches of heaven more valuable than the cheap bottle rocket thrills of the earth. This glorifies God because we're seeing reality for as it is the glory of heaven. Listen to me, Christian, the glory of the coming kingdom, your inheritance is 10,000 times greater than your happiest moment on earth. Your highest pleasure. I'm commending some hours of meditation to you. Your highest pleasure on this earth is but a dismal fraction of the joy of the glory that is to come. Christian, you, you know those moments? You know those moments where like enjoyment is just oozing out of your pores because it has just been like one of those days. You have taking a lovers getaway with your beloved yeah, you're sitting on the porch watching sunset just enjoying and you may just like actually sigh you ever had those moments you just actually sigh it has been so good one of those rare days where things everything went well on the earth you ever find yourself in those days going oh, i wish every day could just repeat like this and you just have this enjoyment christian The glory of the kingdom to come and your inheritance is thousands of times greater than the joy you have in that moment right there. You need to consider the glory of your inheritance in times of suffering in order to strengthen your heart. But also in times of rejoicing, these moments of the earth will seem as but a cheap piece of gum compared to the glory of what is to come when we inherit the kingdom prepared for us by our Father. Christian, you are heirs of God. The infinite God has sat and planned, how can I reveal glory to my sons and daughters? You will know it in the inheritance. Well, secondly, letter B, not only will we inherit But the text says that we are fellow heirs with Christ, that we're going to inherit and we're going to inherit with Jesus. So we will inherit with Jesus. So that begs the question, well, then what is Jesus inheriting? Answer, everything, everything. Now, I want you to follow this with me. This is going to be kind of a, a roundabout way of getting to some of this, but I, I want to I try to show you how this ties into the, the entire narrative of history. And, and, and the Bible is showing us the narrative of history, not as feeble grasshoppers on the earth think it is, but from the perspective of heaven of what the narrative of history actually is. What is the storyline that defines history? Well, follow this with me. God created, God owns, and God rules. He made it all. He owns it all. He rules over all. He rules over the universe, the physical, and the spiritual. He owns and rules all of the cosmos. In all of the cosmos, we are aware of only one place where there is rebellion against his sovereign lordship, and that's this place. To use, to use C.S. Lewis's illustration, if all of the universe... If heaven is singing the praises of God, is exulting in worship, we're the silent planet. We're the place of rebellion. But we belong to God. He owns us. He rules us. We owe him love and worship and joy. Um, You've heard the quote. There is not one square inch over all the cosmos over which the Lord Jesus does not claim mine over God owns it all. He rules it all. It's all rightfully His. And He's going to get it. He's going to get it. He's going to get every molecule, every inch. Every single thing he created is in the end going to bow the knee and give him glory. That includes the angels who fell. That includes the souls, the rulers of the earth who now seem powerful. They will fall on their faces. They will give glory to God. All things were created to in the end magnify his name, even if it is the glory of when enemies crumble before him and are made a footstool for his feet. The Lord Jesus is going to be bowed to by everything. And Jesus came, follow this. Jesus came to die, suffer the justice price of sins, be buried and raised from the dead, He did this to save souls. We know this, but you do need to understand that more is happening in the salvation of souls than just securing your everlasting happiness. We rejoice in that, but you need to know that God was accomplishing more than that. He came to take back what is rightfully his. Every illustration falls short and this one will. So I'm going to combine a couple illustrations, but just consider this with me. It would kind of be like, let's say armed thugs came against your house and they overtook your house. They overran your house and you had to flee in that moment. And they are now occupying your house. Here's the question. Whose house is it? Whose house is it? There are two answers to that. One is it's yours rightfully. You have the deed. Legally, it belongs to you. But practically speaking, someone else is occupying the house. So what do you do? You go get superior firepower and you go take it back. Now, the illustration kind of breaks down there because when the fall occurred, understand this, God did not flee. This is where we need to combine a different kind of illustration. Husbands. Let's suppose that a man came and stole your wife. What do we mean by that? What we mean is he came and stole her affections. He won her heart in a deceptive kind of way. So whose wife or whose is she? Well, there are two answers to that. There's who she should be, but then there is also what is happening right there. And so if a husband said, I'm going to go get her back, what does he mean by that? Well, though a husband would be tempted, he doesn't just mean sheer brute force and superior firepower, though those are the fantasies that would roll in a man's mind. He means more than that as well. He also has to go and win her affections back to himself. So, so follow this. In our sin, when mankind fell, when we were deceived and we put our trust, we retracted our trust from the Lord God and we placed our trust, our allegiance and those affections in another, there is a way in which we became someone else's. Satan gained control in the earth. The Bible says that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He is a lord, lowercase l, he is a lord In the earth. Now it's not rightfully his. This isn't his lawfully. But he has stolen the affections. He has stolen the trust, the allegiance, the submission of those who are on earth. We bowed the knee. Now understand that God in his sovereignty... He has allowed all of this and in mysteries we cannot comprehend even ordained all of this and in the end when it is all said and done and we all look back on the history of how God brought these things about, he will get greater glory than if he had forced a history to come about that was all pleasant. The way that all of these things are going down will in the end magnify and display his sovereignty, his grace, his mercy, his glory more than And if it had gone the way we would have liked to have written it all nice and happy with unicorns and rainbows, God is going to get glory, but it is important for us to understand how all of this ties in from the perspective of what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to save souls, but he also came to win us to himself Crush and defeat his enemies, put them as a footstool beneath his feet and take back what is rightfully his. Because follow this, Jesus could have come and taken back the earth in a much different way. A way that would have displayed his power, but would have meant no salvation for us. He could have come in just sheer brute, sovereign might and condemned all who rebelled against him to hell. He could have come only in force and taken it back. But that would mean no salvation, no church, no bride, no adopted children, no family of God. God has much more gloriously chosen to work in a way where he both saves souls, brings souls to love and worship him and take back what is rightfully his. Jesus at the cross both work to save souls and defeat his enemies and claim what is rightfully his. He has conquered his enemies. Colossians 2 talks about this. That in in verses 13 to 15, if you want to jot those down to take a look at some other time, it talks about the fact that we have been saved by the blood of the cross. And then immediately afterwards in verse 15, it says, when he had, Jesus had disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's the demonic forces. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So Jesus came to save and to claim it all, win it all, defeat his enemies, reestablish the kingdom of God, claim a people for himself, win a people to himself who now love him, we have moved from those who were once enemies to now worshipers, he came to take back the world, establish his kingdom, and claim ownership of the nations. By, by the way, that's the whole point behind when Satan tempted Jesus, do you remember that moment where he showed Jesus the glory of all of the nations of the earth in a moment of time? And he said, I'll hand them over to you right now. Now, he didn't say this part, but this is what was implied. Satan said, I'll give them to you and you don't have to go to the cross. There will be no cross, no suffering, no bearing the wrath for sins. I'll hand the ownership over to you if you will just take a knee before me. That's the point of the temptation. Jesus came to take ownership of the nations. Jesus came to take the world back to himself. So yes, Satan has a kind of control and ownership of the earth, but it is not a lawful one. Jesus has come in the will of the father to take it back, but not just take the world back. He is inheriting the earth. He is inheriting the nations and we will inherit with him. But understand it's not just the earth as it is right now. A remade, renewed, regenerated earth that is made into the new Jerusalem, the kingdom of heaven brought to earth. It is important that you understand, Christian, that throughout eternity, you're not just a wisp in a cloud floating up there in the cosmos somewhere, okay? There is a heaven we go to now, but there is a resurrection to come and the kingdom of heaven will take over the kingdoms of the earth. The new Jerusalem will be here. We will live in the kingdom of heaven. By the way, all of this was revealed even before the New Testament times. If you take a look back for the sake of time, I'm not going to go there right now. Psalm 2 sometime this afternoon, read through the whole psalm. Read through the whole Psalm. That's the one that talks about you are my son. Today I have begotten of you. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance. What the book of Hebrews then does in the New Testament is there's a section in chapters one and two that takes Psalm two and preaches it and shows it. It's right interpretation that Jesus is that son seated at the right hand of the father and the nations are being made his inheritance. They are being made his inheritance his footstool, how first the elect are being saved out of the nations and then will come the judgment where in power he takes them as his own. This is where history is moving. Get with the program. This is where history is moving. Jesus is King. Jesus is Lord. He is taking ownership of the earth. Flee to him for refuge. He is Lord. Turn to him as Lord. Retract the trust you're putting in others and place it in the Lord Jesus. If you do, then you will be saved. He is inheriting all things and we will inherit with him. The kingdom prepared from the father. And by the way, numerous other passages in the New Testament reference this truth as well that we will inherit with Christ. Romans 8 is not a fluke passage. In Revelation three twenty one, Jesus says, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. Well, thirdly, letter C, going back to Romans 8 there, you, you, you notice that the first part of the verse, it's all happy, we rejoice, you may like to go home right now, We're not. Notice the rest of what comes. Here comes the challenging part. Notice that there is a conditional if. We will inherit with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him so that we also may be glorified with him. Um, the New American Standard and, and most translations use that if, if you've got an ESV on your lap, it says provided we suffer. It's the same meaning. It doesn't roll off the tongue as nicely as the conditional if. And we refer to that conditional if in various passages. So understand here what is being taught. Again, very specific language from the Bible. Very specific language uh, speaking of how we are saved and what evidence the true Christian has. So we've been talking about who are the sons of God, the sons and daughters. They're the ones being led by the spirit. You have the same truth being repeated here. It's just stated in a different kind of way. Those who are genuinely born again, those who are justified by faith, they will be kept by God in their faith. Now that that expression is oftentimes misunderstood the eternal security of the believer. When it is said that we are kept by God, that is not saying that um, we just are kept uh, for heaven even though a Christian go and live in all kinds of reckless, presumptuous, unrepentant sin. That's not what that phrase means. It means that we are kept following Christ. That God is continuing to minister to his people the Holy Spirit is convicting and pressing and urging and awakening faith. And by faith, we will keep following Christ. This is the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. It has two parts. One is those who are truly justified. You are eternally secure. You are safe in Christ. But the other side of it, the truth that must also be stated is those who are truly in Christ, they will persevere to the end. True Christians. True Christians will not fall away indefinitely. True Christians can be stupid. Ask David or any one of us. True Christians can have seasons of temporary falling away. And I know that that language can make some of you nervous, but it is in the Bible. There is talk of temporary falling away, but true Christians repent. True Christians come back. So it it happens, it breaks our hearts, but it's going to keep happening until the end. There will be someone who is a part of the church family. We count them a brother or a sister and we think of them as followers of Christ, but then a day comes that they, they fall away. They either deny the faith that happens sometimes or what is maybe more common in America is that they'll still claim to be a Christian and have faith, but they're living in presumptuous unrepentant sin. And so even though they may deny that they have fallen away, the fact is they have fallen away. What are we to make of that soul? That has been the difference between a great many of the Christian groups. That question right there. What do we make of that person? So there are some of those groups who say that guy lost his salvation because I know he was saved. I was there the day he prayed the prayer. Do you see the misunderstanding of what salvation is when that is stated? But here has been the typical Baptist response. They have said, so a man is living in just wild, hellish sin. That guy's still saved because, you know, once saved, always saved. Don't you know? I was there when he prayed the prayer. I know that he's saved. Once again, do you see the misunderstanding of what salvation is? Salvation is not a prayer that you pray. Salvation is a miracle of God from heaven. We respond in faith, but salvation is the work of God. Justification is a declaration from heaven that says that man is pardoned of his sin. That is uh, forgiven of his sin. It's an eternal declaration of God. You can't undo that. But what the Bible says is that those who are truly justified will be worked on by the spirit and will be kept. And so the Bible comes to that guy and this guy and says, both of you are wrong. You cannot lose your salvation, but those who are truly saved will follow Christ. And that's why the Bible is so very specific about its language to say things like this. Who are those who are truly in Christ? Verse 17, those who will suffer with Christ without falling away. You have an inheritance, Christian. If indeed we suffer with him, don't you go thinking, That I can just have prayed some prayer and I'm going to, you know, kind of walk through and keep my head down and be unwilling to obey, unwilling to suffer, deny him when it gets difficult and think once saved, always saved. That is breaking the chain of what is there. And by the way, really important part here, part of the very way that God works to keep his people are verses like this. We read verse 17 and we go, that's serious. I can't be playing around with sin. And God has worked to keep you following Christ. Um, if we had more time, I would show you some other places where this conditional if is used, but we don't. But if you want to jot down Colossians 1, to 23 in the book of Hebrews, this comes up numerous times. Hebrews 3:6 and 3:14, several other times in the book of Hebrews. But now let's ask this question. What is this suffering? If indeed we suffer with him? Acts 14:22 says, "Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God." First Peter four says, "Do not be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes upon you as though something strange were happening. Really, all Peter's doing there is explaining what Jesus said when he said, "A servant is not above his master. If they hated me, they're going to hate you too." If Jesus suffered, and he did, then we cannot expect not to suffer. Christian, you're not of this world. If we think of the thinking of the world, the worldviews of the world, the code of the world, the treasures of the world, the attitude of the world as a river, and there's a current, Christian, it, it, time after time in a 100 places, we are swimming against the current. We, we, we are going to be singled out and, and different. You are out of sync with this world. The world is playing one tune and we're, we're playing amazing grace. You stand out when you are living in obedience. And so Christian, when you run the race and, and live in obedience, there is going to be tribulation that comes in a variety of kinds of ways. So when I say that there's going to be tribulation, one of the first places that our minds jump to is persecution or maybe even slander for the name of Christ. And it, it should. Let me just kind of give you a question to ask. If you never find that you're the odd duck out of the group, if you never are the idiot in the room, if you never get the eyes rolled at you, the glares, the sneers, and just the, in general, brushing off because your views and thinking are just so contrary to everybody else in the room, I I, I wanna ask, this is a question to ask ourselves, am I really engaging? Am I really being vocal? Am I really defending and sharing the gospel? But understand that slander and being the idiot of the room, that's only one kind of difficulty. And there are many more. The Bible tells us that in the path of following Christ, there will be many different kinds. Understand that cancer, financial loss, family hurts, earthly annoyances... As well as slander or persecution, this is all part of the tribulation that is a part of the road of following Christ. You got to understand that when cancer hits, know that is not persecution from man, but there is a way in which it is opposition to you. We talk about the fact that God is sovereign over our afflictions and we need to preach that to ourselves. That if you endure something awful and there is pain, you need to know my father who loves me has ordained this and he means it for my good. But also understand that there is a spiritual enemy who is the direct cause. God has allowed him to work and he has very different intentions by sending these pains and these difficulties. Paul's thorn in the flesh. God said, I have purposes for you, but who was the direct cause? Satan himself. Christian, you're gonna suffer. And we have to accept that. We're going to have seasons of our life where we don't suffer much. God is kind that he often gives us seasons of rest between storms. But we really do need to know that times where life is peachy are the exceptions and not the norm. And if we get to looking at our life, and there are long stretches where everything is just nice, we really need to ask ourselves some, some questions of, am I just living a safe, nominal religiosity? just trying to, you know, kind of attend church, but I I keep my head down, not speak out, not engage, not oppose the armies of darkness and just do a nominal kind of religious existence. Listen, that is not actually following Christ. That's not the road Jesus walked. Jesus walked the gauntlet of the road to Calvary with the sneers, the insults, the spit thrown at him and bearing the burden of the cross, Jesus said, follow me. If you are walking a path of roses, it's not the road your savior went before you. We are called to follow him. Christian, I gotta tell you, if you, if you engage, run the race, if you really step in, you're going to suffer. And and some of it in just very obvious kinds of ways. If you minister to people, you're going to have difficulty. Do you know why? (laughs) Because we're difficult. If you step in to get in the trenches and minister with people, there is a certain amount of hardship that will come even in that. If you take dying to sin seriously, See, because just the, the, the nominal way of doing it is I just get rid of the scandals from my life, but then I, but then I just keep all of the secret things, the pornography, the pride, the, the not loving my wife like I'm called to. Listen, if you take dying to sin seriously, that in itself is tribulation. You go die to your pride and tell me how it feels. You go pray and ask God, Humble me, oh, you are going to know tribulation. You are going to know difficulty. And then Christian, the moment that you begin to engage, I mean really engage when you are stirred in worship and you decide I am going to start really following Christ and opposing the enemies of darkness, you move up the list of high value targets in the schemes of your enemy, which means... The spiritual forces are going to pay more attention to you than they ever have before. You are going to know spiritual warfare like you did not think was possible. You are going to suffer. Many a Christian has felt the stir of worship from reading the scripture and then stepped in only to be overwhelmed by the amount of spiritual warfare and the pain that it causes and given up. I have never in my life known a person to step forward for missions or ministry and has not been laid low by pain. I have story after story I could tell of missionaries who get to the field and six months in they're diagnosed with cancer or their children die. You step in and you are going to suffer you are going to suffer, but what are we here for? See, because we can hear all of that. You can experience it and then be like, I don't, I don't know if I want all of this, but what are we here for? You know, in our youthful vigor, just youthful energy, we can see these kinds of things from the Bible. We can read these books by our heroes and be like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to suffer it all. I'm going to go through all of it. And then It hits. And it's pain like you didn't know existed. And then it'll cause you to really rethink that youthful energy. And it'll really challenge, am I doing this for the glory of God? Or am I doing this just because I wanted to feel glorious about myself? Christian, you step in and you are going to know tribulation. But this is why we are here. I I, I don't say all of those things to try to be like, don't go minister. Christian, it is worth it. It is worth it. Hear the words of Paul, whether by life or by death, may Christ be magnified. Your inheritance and your reward is worth it. But there are some things we need to comprehend and we have to accept the fact in Christ, we will suffer. But do you also notice that the text doesn't just say you will suffer, but that we must suffer with him with Jesus. And this is part of the big point. So what does it mean to suffer with Christ? Well, here's what I believe it means. Two things, but they're tied together with a a single thread. And the single thread is union with Christ. So what it means is number one, we are following the one who took up his cross before us. Jesus, who took up his cross, says, Follow me. When you suffer, you're walking the same path. And there is a symbolic, poetic kind of way that you are suffering in union with Christ. Jesus did not live a plush life. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We follow him. We suffer and we suffer with him. So that's the first thing. We cannot think we're too good to suffer. We have to accept that. But it also means this. We suffer while in fellowship with him when we endure it with faith. It's like Paul, when he stood before the rulers and he said, everyone deserted me, but the Lord stood by me. What does that mean? It means he was really there. It means Paul was very much aware of the fact that Christ never left his side. He never leaves us, never forsakes us, If you endure cancer while trusting him and you pray, you worship, you cry out to him, you seek his face, you obey, you serve, you labor, and all the while you never stop worshiping. You are suffering with him in fellowship with him. And then lastly, letter D, very quickly, so that we also may be glorified with him. This is the first time this book has mentioned this word. We've been mentioning it, but it's the first time it's brought up in this, in this book. As has happened numerous times, he's going to bring up a topic and then he's going to leave it for a little bit and then he's going to come back to it. We're going to come back to glorification and spend more time with it. But let me give you just kind of the summary version of it. The summary version is, Christian, at the end of all of this, there's justification, we're in this life, we're sanctified, and then will come the day that we are glorified. But glorified isn't just a technical term. Like, that's actually speaking of what is going to happen to us. We were created with glory. Glory. When we were made in Adam at the beginning, the angels looked on mankind and smiled, worshiping God for the glory that they saw in this incredible creature. And then came the fall and they grimaced as they saw the sewage to which we had descended to. What God is doing in the Christian now is slowly glorifying in this time. As we are made holy, we are growing in glory. It is only in minuscule portions right now, but the day is coming when the finished product will be revealed. Later in this passage, it talks about creation anxiously longs for the revealing of the sons of God. God is going to reveal the finished product. The angels saw our glory at the beginning. They saw our fall. And throughout history, it's kind of like God looked at the angels and said, watch this watch what I can do. And he has worked redemption. And in the Christian, there is this slow process of gaining glory. We don't realize what a miracle it is when we die to sin, but the angels are going, this is amazing. That pathetic waste is not such a pathetic waste. Gaining in glory and one day the finished product will be revealed. The angels, all of us will see it and we will recognize how incredible it is and we will fall in worship. We will worship him for what he has done, seeing it, joy, inexplicable joy, joy that doesn't fade, gratitude that leads us to worship for eternity for what he has done. Now, let me just very quickly at the end here, make just one point of application. From this passage, you see what we've talked about. There are many points of application that we could talk to, talk about. You on your own can come to some of them. Let me just mention one here. Christian, we're always tempted to give our energy and to orient our lives to try to gain our ultimate now. Like to try to get our treasure Now, that's always the temptation. There's a sucker and a thousand dollar bill and we're always reaching for the immediate pleasure of the sucker because we don't comprehend the glory of what is to come. But the Christian, as we come to learn these things, we set our sights higher and farther beyond this life. So you know what happens? We all get to daydreaming about those things we would like to have. did you ever do that? Now, I don't encourage it <laughs> because it can stir some greed, stir some lust, but you know, people have played that game. Maybe you've played it. What if I won the lottery? What would I do then? That's a dangerous game to play. Don't do it, I'm being serious. But if you find yourself daydreaming about if I could have my ultimate now, what would it be, you know, weirdos like me, it's like, 500 acres of pristine hunting land or, you know, something like that. You know, if I could have my ultimate and and then we get to thinking about those kinds of things, the temptation of life is to then orient my life to try to attain that treasure. Now it's to try to work all things. Let's see if I got this higher paying job and then, you know, we, we stopped doing this and then we, we ordered all of these things. Then I could get this ultimate. Now the Christian is to live differently. The Christian is to be content with little now and we have our sights on the inheritance and the reward to come. What it means, Christian, is that we can wait. We can wait. One of the comforting thoughts that hit me one day, I was doing that whole kind of sinful daydreaming about, oh man, to have land and all of this kind of stuff. And it hit me, I will, I will And I don't mean, caution here, I don't mean like as some people talk about heaven, that it's just a buffet, you just become whatever you want. Oh, I want to be a drop of rain today. Okay, that's fine. No, that's not how heaven goes. Okay, that's not how it works. All right. But your soul will be satisfied. And your soul will be satisfied thousands of times more than if you got your ultimate on earth. That's the thing about getting your ultimate stuff on earth. It always disappoints. You dream about that possession, Then you get it, and for five minutes, it thrills you. It's a bottle rocket. It explodes, and it is done, and then you're bored again. Do you know why? Because you were made to long for something bigger than that. You were made to long for a kingdom. You were made to long for an inheritance. Christian, it is ours, and we can wait for it. And what this means is you can do missions. You can serve orphans in hard places, This is what has inspired many Christians to voluntarily walk into hardship. And the world looks at them like, why would you waste your one opportunity at happiness? And the Christian says, because this is not my one opportunity for happiness. This is the test. Then comes the reward. Christian, you can do missions because we are waiting on the greater reward. Christian, it is okay not to get your treasure now. It is okay not to get your ultimate now. We are waiting on the inheritance to come. We will inherit with him if we suffer with him so that we also may be glorified with him. Let's pray. Our father in heaven, Lord, we worship you for yet another grace you have poured out, the inheritance. We don't fully understand it, We know at this point, all we can do is see the language of scripture, see the reaction of those who have looked on it and believe you. So father, I pray that you will, Lord, solidify in our hearts, our understanding of this inheritance that we will long for it. And Lord, that we will wait, we will be content and we will labor for what is to come and not for our treasure here on earth. Father, help us. I also pray for any in the room, oh God, that has never turned to Christ to be saved. Oh Lord, I pray that even now in these moments, they would. Father, please bless us. And as we celebrate the baptism here, I pray, oh God, that you will be glorified. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at True I-N-D, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.